Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hi, and welcome back to Action 22's Making Action Happen, where we talk about the most pressing issues facing our Southern Colorado communities. We are super excited today because we have Senator Senator Michael Bennett with us. This was a really big deal. He just got back from DC um, and he's agreed to sit down and visit with us uh, today. We're gonna follow up with some of the conversations that we had during our Voices of Rural Colorado. Um, and I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And so we wanna welcome you, uh, Senator Bennett. Thanks so much for being with us. You just got back from DC. Yes, I uh, just got back last night spent this morning in Washington County and not, that's not in Action 22 but it's in uh, far northeast Colorado with uh, some uh, duck, Ducks Unlimited guys looking at the work that they're doing on the South Platte to make the habitat better for, for migratory birds. Oh that's fantastic. Now I know that you had a goal for in the last year to visit every single county in Colorado, was that the, your last county to visit? I got. I think I have two. I think I have two, maybe two more. I know one is Jackson County. Okay. Uh, and uh, but I will have visited every county, and I know Brian worked for Wayne Allard, and that was something he used to do every year. I, I thought it was uh, an important thing to do during COVID, especially. In fact, I have I have here the list. I'll send it to you, uh, Sarah. Of, all the visits of, that we've done in, in your counties uh, right? when we had them and you, you've been at some of that stuff. So anyway, it's, think, been, it, it's been important to do, I think, during COVID. Uh, it's been tremendous. And, and the last little bit, I think there's been a lot of maybe concern or angst uh, about getting represented and having the same kind of um, support, if you will. Uh, and you guys have really stepped up uh, and we really want to give a shout out to, to your staff members, in particular, the ones for the Action 22 area, Jackie and Aaron Minks down, Jackie's here in Pueblo, she's new, um, she's fantastic, and then also Aaron Minks down in the San Luis Valley. So we, we appreciate you tasking them with being very engaged with Action 22. Yeah, well, as I said to you the other day, Sarah, you know, I think a lot of our job, my job, Corey Gardner's job when he was in the job, John Hickenlooper's job now that he's in the job. Our job obviously is to work for all of you and that's what our staff does. I mean, they are really, really good. And they, Brian was one and he knows that um, the difference between sending somebody into a room who can lead a discussion or help lead a discussion versus uh, sending somebody into a room who's just there to take notes is the difference between being a successful senator and not being a successful senator. That's how important the staff really are. Well, we've sang Brian's praises, and obviously we're a huge fan of Brian's, but we've sang Brian's <laughs> praises, but it was really the effectiveness of, of his leadership for Congressman Tipton that made everything that we've been able to do in the Action 22 area possible. So we appreciate that. So along that vein, um, I wanted to dive in a little bit about sort of the spirit of what's going on in DC right now, post-election, how everybody's feeling. There's energy and a lot of different kinds of energy on different levels. I wanted to see 
from where you're sitting, I know that it's a commitment that you've made and something you're passionate about, but how do we really bridge the gap? How do we, um, how is leadership recognized that regardless of the outcome of the election, half of the country still they, they was split. Um, right. It was really, really close. How do we heal and, and get back to working together? First of all, I think you're doing it by part, you're, you're modeling what we need to do by having conversations like this one. Um, that's what we really need to do. Anybody, believe me, and I say, I say this to the interns in when the summer interns in Washington, anyone can come to Washington and repeat the talking points they heard on the cable television last night. You know, anyone can come to Washington and repeat the stuff that's on social media that, that doesn't actually have any uh, relationship to reality. That's not leadership either. And we really need leadership at this moment to overcome the forces of social media and, and the polarizing forces that exist in our country uh, on, on television as well. And when I think about the last few weeks, I mean, you know, January 6th, that's the day of the, of the riot in the, on the Capitol. I never felt endangered, but I was, when I was there, I, we, they took us to another room and I was watching the TV, seeing people, you know, a lot of people with really unfortunate signs and other kinds of things. And all I can think about is what is the rest of the world thinking about right now? What are they thinking about when they're watching the United States Capitol overrun, the Capitol Police overrun, people standing on the inaugural stage set up for the next president, um, trying to deny that peaceful transition of power from happening? We're used to seeing that in other countries. We've never seen it here, literally. The last time the Capitol was stormed was 1812 and it was the British, it wasn't our own people. Right. On the other hand, then we had the inauguration, you know, and we did have the peaceful transfer of power. And there are a lot of countries in this world that never get from January 6th to the 20th. We right. did. And so now we have an incredible opportunity to, 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 to lead this country away from the divisiveness that's existed um, off and on in our country's history, not just in the last four years, it's, you know, goes back to the founding of our country. And we have a decision to make. Do we want to live in a divided country or do we want to support our kids and our grandkids? Do we want to preserve this democracy? Do we want to create an economy that works for everybody, including rural Colorado, not just for the top 10%? Do we want to restore America's place in the world? I think we want to do all those things. And I actually believe based on my town halls in Colorado, that there is about a 70% consensus on a whole bunch of things ranging from infrastructure to higher education, to taxation, to the deficits, to, to climate and energy. Uh, but if we leave it to the people that just see their own political interest in dividing people and churning up controversy and disputes, we can fill a lifetime doing that. We just won't be very proud about what we turn over to the next generation of Coloradans or Americans. And I, I'm glad to hear that from you, Senator, because I've always said that as divided as everybody seems right now, I still think, I, I give it 80%. You take 100 people and put them in a room, 80 of them are gonna have the same feelings about everything. And, and contrary to what social media and even the media puts out there, we're, I don't think we're as divided as they make it look right now. I totally agree. And I'll take your 80. That's more optimistic than my 70. 
but I know it. I mean, you know, I've been all over Scott Tipton's district and all over it again and all over it again and all. And, and, and I believe it's true. Like it is very easy for me to understand how we live in a world where there are counties where I might only get 25% of the vote or 30% of the vote, no matter what I do, no matter what I do, I understand it. But where there also is a consensus you can develop about, you know, what the future ought to look like in this country. And that's another, by the way, that's another important piece is this whole idea somehow that's become fashionable today that, um, that we're all standing on principle and that, and, that, and that, you know, we've got these convictions and, you know, if it's my way or the highway and I'm not even gonna talk to you, I'm not even gonna listen to what you have to say. That's exactly the opposite of the way this whole system is de designed. The system is a democracy, it's a republic. That's what they called it first. And the whole idea was there's gonna be no king or tyrant to tell you what to think, you know? That it, we were going to be free people and we were going to have different points of view, different opinions, different experiences. And we would bring those different points of view into the marketplace of ideas. And out of that, we create a more durable and more imaginative solution than any king or tyrant could come up with on their own. That's the genius of the American system. And that's what we're destroying at the federal level right now, or that's, that's what we have been destroying. That's what we have to get back. I want politicians to come back and say, you know what? I only got 75% of what I wanted. And, and here was the 25% I had to do differently. And by the way, not a 25% for the special interest, but a 25% because there were people from a different party, from a different part of the country, you know, with a different point of view who felt that they didn't see it eye to eye with us, but we were able to get it done. That's how every county commission in Colorado works. I mean, if oh, yeah. county commissions work the way Congress worked, They'd be run out on a rail in the first, you know, week. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I, I always, um, you know, I've worked in this business for over ten years now. And what's frustrating to me as a staffer over all the years was always, you know, why didn't your boss vote this way? Why isn't he representing my views and these other people's views? And one thing I always tell people, it's, it's like, hey, he doesn't represent just you or your party. He represents the district. Like right. we're all his constituents. It's not just the Republicans or just the Democrats. That's totally right. And the, that's the great thing about representing Colorado in the Senate, because it is a third Republican, a third Democratic, mm -hmm. and a third independent. Basically, I mean, unaffiliated actually has the largest number of people. Yep. And I, I've had town halls in, in Boulder, you know, or in in uh, uh, in uh, Mesa County and in Delta County and where, where I've said exactly what you said, which is I have to represent the entire state, whether people voted for me or whether they didn't vote for me. Mm -hmm. You're part of that state and, and I respect your opinion. Your job is different than my job, you know, and that of course also is true for advocacy groups as well, you know, who might have a very, very, very solid point of view and a frame of reference and all the rest and a great argument. Their job's a different job than my job is. And I want to be able to come back and not tell people why, why I always voted with them, but I want to at least know that I can explain my votes no matter where I go. And so far, I think I've been able to, to do that. No, you've done a great job. I wonder if you would name drop a colleague um, from the other side of the aisle that you think has done a really good job of 
doing exactly what you just described. I well, I think you know Cory Gardner and I had a good relationship uh, when we served together in the in the Senate. We found things to work on. I think that Lamar Alexander, who used to be he was the Republican uh, chairman of the of the Education Committee, the former Bush Secretary of State, who really kindly engaged me on a bunch of school stuff because I had been superintendent of the Denver Public Schools. Right. Uh, Richard Burr, who's from North Carolina, he and I have worked on a whole bunch of different uh, uh, efforts around trying to make drugs more available and to try to make them uh, cheaper. Um, Mitt Romney, uh, who I know is not everybody's favorite Republican <laughs> these days, but uh, is the first person that first Republican that signed up on a fully refundable tax credit, a child tax credit with a bill that I had written, which I think some version of which I think we're actually going to pass in this COVID bill. Um, you know, that he's been a, a pleasure to work with. I, I, I've got a lot of colleagues on the other side of the aisle that I've worked with over the years. There's some that I like that, you know, whose company I've enjoyed less and, and you guys can keep me engage them on the floor of the Senate. So I don't have to tell you who they are. Yeah, for sure. Um, Senator <laughs> I did ask you to name drop, so. Yep. <laughs> um, so can you give us a status on the stimulus, this next round yeah. of stimulus? There's a whole lot in it. What's going on right now? Yeah, so it's um, the Biden administration has put together their proposal. Now it's being um, drafted into legislation. They proposed about 1.9 uh, trillion. That's a lot of money. Uh, and um, about uh, a trillion of that is direct relief for families. So that's extended unemployment insurance. That's my uh, early uh, uh, child tax credit and an earned income tax credit bill taken together. They would cut childhood poverty in Colorado by almost 50%. They cut childhood poverty in the country by almost 50%. Cut, uh, uh, um, actually you'll be interested in this, Brian, uh, Native American kids' poverty by over 60%. Uh, wow. And all it is is a change in the tax code. It's not, it, it's going to be a very substantial middle class tax cut. I think that's an amazing step forward for our country and for, frankly, for rural Colorado. It's going to be a huge deal uh, if we can get it done. Uh, there's housing uh, money in there as well, there's food, and of course, the thing everybody talks about, the $1,400 checks, <laughs> uh, which are the remainder of the 600 that originally was placed there. Then there's 400 billion for um, public health infra infrastructure, vaccinations. You know, we have, we did a good job. The Trump folks pushed the, vac the companies to make these vaccines and they did it quickly, you know, in, an, in a year. We literally have no national plan for how to distribute the vaccines right. and no infrastructure to, distri to distribute the vaccines. It's really tough in, in counties like the counties that you represent, uh, Sarah, they're, they're really, the public health infrastructure has been so underfunded for so long, there literally aren't the, the places to do vaccines. There aren't the people to put vaccines in people's arms. And, and that's, um, I had, had a proposal called Health Force, which is sort of also been now part of this plan that the Biden folks have grabbed onto. So that, that'll be really important as well. And then the, the last piece of it is basically state and local governments and small businesses. That's what it all is. There's, 
I think there can be an argument about whether it should be bigger or whether it should be smaller, but the contents of it are, um, you know, I think they stuck to uh, the, the COVID, you know, the COVID matters that we face. We still face severe uh, uh, dislocation in our state and across the country. This economy is a long way from being healed. And every month we delay costs us a point or two in terms of GDP growth coming out of this recession, which I think is why it's important. I regret that we have to do it, but I think it's important that we continue to, to, to provide relief, bridge ourselves into March, into September, and then, uh, and then begin to build our economy back again. And we'll get through it, but it, it, is, it is one of the, I mean, I've said this for months and months and months as Donald Trump you know, sort of said, this isn't my issue, this is the governor's issue. Testing's not my issue, it's the governor's issue. is not my issue, it's the governor's issue. If there is no other reason for us to be one nation under God, and I can think of a lot of reasons to be one nation under God, it is to deal with a global pandemic. And we are seeing the effects of a national government that refused to deal with it. And, uh, and now I have new hope that we're gonna step up, deal with it, and get our economy open again and, and roaring again, which is what we need to do. And, and one point that I, I always bring up when we talk about um, any type of COVID relief or stimulus relief on this show is that, you know, you still do have the naysayers that the government shouldn't pay for this. That's too much money. But again, I, I always say that, remember that these businesses are shut down at no fault of their own. Yeah. The, this isn't this isn't a bad business going out of business. Right. This is, yeah. you know, forced shutdowns, right. you know. So that, that's always important. I like to bring yeah, that up. Yeah, that's totally true. This is not the creative destruction of, you know, capitalism. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is the destru uncreative destruction of COVID. I mean, one thing I say to folks along the same lines, Brian, is, you know, um, it, it is, you look at liquor stores and they're doing great during the pandemic. And restaurants have gotten crushed, you know, and that doesn't have anything to do with who's the better capitalist. It's the the circumstances of, of, of a pandemic. Absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about the funding of the conduit. Um, people, we have listenership all over the country and actually some international listeners. Um, so they're not going to really understand the the importance of this, the funding of the conduit. It's a water issue for Colorado, but this has been a heavy lift. Um, and I know you work closely with Senator Gardner on this, but talk as, toot your own horn about the funding of, of the conflict. Well, it's been, so for people, for our listeners overseas, uh, I'll start the story by saying, John F. Kennedy came to Pueblo, Colorado uh, in 1960 and uh, promised uh, the, uh, the Arkansas Valley Conduit as part of the, uh, the the, a, a much broader water project, um, the Fry Arc project that, uh, that we built. And it was a big deal for our state because we have so little water and it is so challenging for us, especially for agriculture to have reliable water because of drought. That of course is becoming more and more true. Um, and so the conduit is a last piece of that that basically would connect the Pueblo Reservoir uh, with uh, uh, the, all the communities in southeastern Colorado that were promised 
clean water all those years ago and they've never been able to get it. And over time, the water has become more polluted because of um, agricultural practices and because of just uh, natural minerals. So this is something Corey and I worked on a lot together. Uh, I actually worked on it with Mark Udall before Corey was there. And we've got to keep the funding going and, I, and we will. This is uh, one of my priorities for the uh, Biden budget. And um, they're going to have to learn about the, uh, the, the project, just like the Obama administration had to learn about it. And then the Trump administration had to learn about it. Now we're going to have new people that are going to have to learn about it. But, um, but it will always be a, be, a, be a priority of mine because I think a promise was made by Jack Kennedy a long time ago and people deserve to have that promise kept. And it's obviously critical because if you don't have clean water, it's very hard for you to have economic development. Same, of course, is true if you don't have high-speed internet or if you can't sell your electrons to the grid. And these are all issues that we're gonna be wrestling with in, in rural Colorado in the years to come. Absolutely. Which uh, is a good bridge to the next part. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, bad so that, it is a bad joke, but it's not that bad of a joke. Um, your bridge um, bill is all about broadband. I've looked over this bill really closely because you know we've been working on this forever. It's a really good piece of legislation. You had a lot of stakeholders, a lot of people who are experts in this area. Um, I hope it's a model for other communities around the country who are struggling, um, but it's really a good piece of, um, of legislation with regard to broadband. Give us some high points on it for yeah, those yeah. of us who don't know. What yeah, the main about. point is that it, um, the main point is that it allows communities, counties and municipalities to build their own broadband and it funds the, 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 the building of broadband by those communities. And Brian will know these guys, but I first sort of got into this stuff the first time I went to see the guys at uh, Delta Montrose uh, uh, the, who are geniuses. I mean, these guys, they are, they are, they are, they are, their whole job is to say, look, how are we going to sell electrons for the least amount of money so we can have the lowest electricity prices in the state? And how are we going to uh, have as much broad, you know, the highest speeds that we can world competitive speech and they figured out how to do it longmont colorado figured out how to do it and um and and so we can do it and for people that are on the uh listening to this program thinking that guy seems to be wanting to spend a lot of money you know in all these things he's talking about one of the things i would say is we got to stop spending the money the way we have been spending it and spend it in a correct way so if you look at all the promises that have been made to rural Colorado and rural America on broadband over and over again. Those promises have come with money, but that $50 billion, five zero billion that we've spent basically has all been subsidies to the big telecom companies. It never got to rural Colorado. And in addition, because of the way that the FCC measures whether there's actually broadband penetration, which is if there's one household on this ridge over here, then the whole county must have it. That also has meant that, um, and this bill addresses that. It also says that you got to build, you know, massive speeds up and massive speeds down so that people living in rural Colorado have the same broadband access that people living in Denver have. Because 
you're as likely to want to have a competitive small business in rural Colorado as you are in Denver. And I can tell you this, you are surely as likely to want to educate your children uh, in the 21st century in rural Colorado as you are in Denver. And kids, if, you, if they don't have access to broadband, it's the same thing as saying, we're okay with a world where some kids have access to textbooks and other kids don't have access to textbooks. That's exactly what it is. Does it, um, you said it addresses how they measure the speeds. I know the, the current um, measurement of broadband is 25 up and, or 25 down and five up. Um, that's just not enough. I, I mean, think this is, I think my bill is a hundred up and a hundred down. Okay, good. Yeah. Cause that, that was always the sticking point with me yeah. working in this. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and I think uh, that the language that I, is a tripping point that shouldn't be in any of this discussion but it's the word adequate. Um, that's what they say, it's adequate speed. Yeah. What does adequate mean and who's defining what right. adequate is? Yeah. And is adequate the same um, 18 months ago as it is right now? Yep, and I still have people arguing with me, which is fine, as we said earlier, I, you know, I don't actually get out of, the, uh, let me say something to your listeners as well. Get out of the bed in the morning expecting people are going to disagree with you, not that they're going to agree with you. It's okay. It's all right. It's fine. You know, yeah. I still have people say to me, we don't, people don't need those kind of speeds up. That's not what the Delta Montrose guys would say. They'd say that we want, we want to attract businesses here. We want to compete. We think we can compete with Denver. You know, we think we can compete with Salt Lake and we can get people to live on the West Slope or in, in Southern Colorado but it's gonna be very hard to do it with terrible broadband. Um, and I can tell you, just having spent the year on Zoom calls like this, Ugh. all over the state, people are really disadvantaged by the fact that they, you know, their kids are having to go to school and pick up packets because they can't do their work on a computer and it, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. It's crazy. I appreciate the work you've done on that. Um, I appreciate especially that you've reached out uh, um, to organizations like CECOM um, and their folks over there, John and those guys, um, to really yeah. get a, a pretty good grasp of, of really what we're talking about. All right, so I'm going to get into the heavy stuff now. If you're ready, it's um, oh, just to make sure we have we have you for a half hour. It's about there yet. Do you still have more time, or do you need to get sure. off? Sure. Why don't you take? Do you could you think we could finish it about ten minutes or so? Yeah, or, I yeah. think we could. I think if I did, if my answers were shorter, you wouldn't have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're fine. This is really the last uh, topic I was going to dive in on, um, and when we had uh, last week, and for some of you listeners. Um, and Action 22 members and everybody else across the country. We, every year we have uh, this meeting with the other organizations that are like ours, our sister organizations, Club 20 and Pro 15. We call it Voices of Rural Colorado, but we really connect with all of our, all of our uh, leaders around the state. Um, and, and Senator, you were on that call. There was a, an outstanding young lady that kept asking really great questions about energy. Um, and I think the thing that she was really trying to dial down on, and like you said, somebody should hire her, somebody should um, scoop her up right away, is everybody wants to take care of, and Coloradans especially, want to take care of the environment, that we want to take care of their land. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's important um, too, because it's, it's who we are and, and what we're about. 
I think a lot of the environmental policy angst that's going on right now is because they don't understand or we don't, they don't see a clear path to making that environmental policy economically feasible. So you started to dive in a little bit on that when we talked last week. Would you talk a little bit about what your vision is for that? Yeah, sure. Um, the, we used to have something in our country called American foreign policy. You know, I don't know, Sarah, if you're old enough to remember that. <laughs> But yeah. I'm old enough to remember. It. Yeah, I yeah. am. <laughs> and no matter, you know, no matter what president was elected president, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, they knew what their job was with respect to the Soviet Union. You know, right. they knew what their job was with respect to uh, the Cold War. And and we didn't win that war fighting it one year at a time. You like you, there's no way you, people talk about the Vietnam War sometimes as it as a year long war fought over and over and over again. That's not how you win a war. You win a war like we won the Cold War. And I believe, I know not everybody's gonna agree with me, that's fine. I think we've got to get to a place uh, where we have something called American climate policy, not like we had American foreign policy, not democratic climate policy, not Republican climate policy, but American climate policy, because we're never gonna be able to deal with climate change unless we have such a thing, because it won't last. Like if I put my ideas in and Mitch McConnell rips them all out two days, two years later, what good have we done? No, you know, tip for anybody. And so I think the key to that and the key to building consensus as Brian and I were talking about earlier is jobs and incomes and being able to demonstrate to people that through the transition that we need to make from a carbon-based energy economy to a, a much more uh, renewable-based climate energy economy, that as we do that, we're doing it in a way that takes account of um, the contributions that communities like Craig, Colorado have made to this country over many, many years. You know, I, I don't think, sometimes people use the language just transition. I, I don't really like that language. I say, I think it sounds, when people say that, it sounds like, you're leaving people behind from the outset. I think what we need is a plan that says, this is what a job creating climate policy looks like. Let me give you an example. Let me just give you one. I'll give you two. One example. Uh, I have a bill uh, uh, called the, something like the American, uh, the four, the, I, I don't have the title, but it is a bill that is intended to make a massive investment in fire mitigation in in this country and in uh, forest uh, maintenance and in water watershed uh, maintenance. And I can remember, Sarah, years ago when I was defer for just in this job and I was in a town hall meeting at a water, uh, at a, with a group of water folks south of Alamosa somewhere. And they were telling me, they, they were saying, Senator, it's really important for us to get the funding for the snowtail equipment. And I said, well, I don't know what that is. Tell me what that is. He told me what it was, which is the equipment that measures the snow hundreds of miles away from where those farmers live. But that's obviously the way they know what it's going to look like for planting time. Like it shows you how connected we are. And those watersheds are critical to our state's economy and to America's economy. And for decades, we have not done anything to protect 
you know, our homeowners in those areas from fire. We've done nothing to protect the watersheds and we haven't taken care of the forests. My bill, the, the estimates are, would create 2 million jobs in rural America, uh, high paying jobs in rural America, doing that fire mitigation that we, that we need so desperately need done. And I've been telling people, you need to understand this infrastructure is as important to America as the Lincoln Tunnel is, but we've ignored it. And it's national forests. These are federal lands that we're talking about. So that's an example of my being, you know, having, if I can pass that bill, or as I talk about the bill, go to rural parts of Colorado where I will never get in some of the places 25 or 30% of the vote, as I said earlier, but say to them, this is what I'm fighting for so that you will have these watersheds preserved so your water is preserved, so your livelihood is pre preserved. That's what climate legislation looks like. All of a sudden you start to think, you know what? Not only are we creating 2 million jobs, but it looks more likely that I'm gonna be able to pass my farm or my ranch on to the next generation, you know, and therefore preserve those agricultural jobs. And as we think about what it would look like to invest in our infrastructure, those are the kinds of things we, we need to do. We need to, look, when I stand on the Eastern Plains, you know, and I, with, with farmers and ranchers and the electrons are going over our head from coal producing power plants to, you know, um, uh, to someplace else, they're not actually generating jobs for those folks, you know, in that area. But you could imagine a world with a much more distributed grid, with a much more resilient grid that allowed rural counties in Colorado to sell their electrons, you know, from solar and wind and other kinds of stuff up to the grid, which today they can't do because of um, the regulatory issues that we are facing. So I think we need to have as a clear focus of the transition, a recognition that communities in this state and across the country have given their all to help support the economy over many generations, and they need to share in this, in this new economy. Uh, and, and having said everything that I've said, I want to just finish the answer by, by saying this so that people don't say, I say one thing in one place and something somewhere else. I am deeply, deeply worried about climate change and about the world's ability to manage this problem. And they cannot manage it without American leadership. I sometimes hear people say, well, the Chinese, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what we do as long as the Chinese are continuing to do what they're doing or what India is doing, you know, continues to do. When did we become the people that are going to follow the other folks? We want to own that economy in the 21st century. We want to own it. And I guarantee you, if we don't, the Chinese will. And so this idea that somehow we're the patsies of the world, which is kind of the way the last president looked at it, uh, I think that's a mistake to look at it that way. I think we can own it here. And you think about things like just electric cars alone. You can't buy, I know I'm wandering around on you, but I once talked to the guy from Waterpik, you know, based in Fort Collins. So what would it take for you to move your manufacturing back to Colorado? Can't do it. Why? The supply chain's all in China, you know, and the batteries are made in China. We have a decision to make. Do we want those, those electric vehicle batteries to be made in China? Or do we want to make them here and have the supply chain here? And I think we know now that um, 
we've paid a very heavy price. Of, and, and by the way, this is something Donald Trump said, and I'm not sure I would agree with the way he said it, but I certainly think he called a question and he said, China had been taking advantage of us. And, uh, and I think a better way of thinking about that is China was kind of having a China first policy that was kind of making us into collateral damage. Well, we shouldn't be collateral. And we shouldn't be waiting for them to lead. We shouldn't be waiting for India to lead. We should lead. And, and I think Colorado actually is a great state to do this because we have the beginnings of a diversifying economy around our state, but it has to become more diverse than it, than it historically has been. Uh, and uh, and, and that's, it's, it's never easy, but people are reinventing the future you know, every day in our state. And I've I, I would bet on them. I think we're going to do fine. Well, sir, as the uh, good former congressional staffer in me, that's your 10 minutes. So I've got to keep you on schedule. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry the answers were so long. And I look forward to seeing you guys in person soon. Let me know whatever it is we can do to help my staff and I are there for you and, and for the rest of Colorado. We Stay appreciate safe. you doing this and everything you do for us so much, Senator. Thank Thanks, you so guys. much. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. So Action 22 board met today for their usual pre-session meeting with legislators and to take some positions on a few things. And so I want to uh, give a shout out, first of all, to our incredible Action 22 legislators um, that are always so great to participate and to be super engaged. And they always want to know how to engage better. They show up to meetings, but I want to give a special shout out to um, new Senator Cleve Simpson, who just came on for uh, District 35, um, I think is the one. And uh, of course, Donald Valdez, who always shows up, who never misses a meeting with us uh, or an opportunity and checks in with us on a, on a very regular basis. Um, Majority Leader Danae Escar is one of our Action 22 members and also one of our Action 22 legislators. Um, she was on the JBC, but now she's a majority leader for the House. Um, and then we had uh, Rod Pelton um, join us by phone. He is the Action 22 county that he is over, and then he's over a bunch of other counties, but the Action 22 county is, is Cheyenne County, and um, he just joined Action 22 as well. Uh, and they all do a really, really good job. We had a lot of discussion today about um, some of the, some of what I anticipate will be coming down the pike and some of it will be, um, I don't know, we don't know for sure if every piece of legislation that uh, we anticipate will be introduced will actually be introduced, but we covered uh, several areas and we had our lobbyist, uh, Mike Beasley, mm -hmm. um, and he's the Action 22 lobbyist. He does it pro bono for us, um, but he does a really good job. He's one of the most influential uh, lobbyists. He used to, he was chief of staff for Governor Owens. Um, he's been over DOLA. He's done all those things. If you're a longtime listener to the show, uh, you've heard him. We've had him on a couple times, um, and he helped uh, lead that discussion. But I thought it was really interesting. Some of the feedback that we got from uh, our our board members on some of the things that we talked about. Um, I'm going to go over this and you tell me, I don't know what, what struck you um, that you were surprised to hear from everybody. Um, no, I mean, it was overall good. Um, just kind of hearing the views and um, points of views on some of the positions that the organization is going to be taking. Um, again, being new to this here, um, it's interesting to see the process that 
how the board decides to support or not support an issue because in the past i've only said hey what do you guys support what don't you like you know so it, it's good to be part of that process and actually have some input in it as well um again it, it's just interesting to me and, and it's you know these are state issues i've always dealt federal so it's I, i'm learning how the state works versus how the feds work and it's some similar some similarities but it's completely different yeah and, um mystery to me still but i'm learning so i think one of the things that i love the most about action 22 of course is our board of directors they every single one of them is a leader in their own community but there's no slouches they're running their own organizations they are um the we had dr luhan who's the president of laura community college we had uh, chad borthman on for a few minutes uh who is the um, executive director for Colorado Farm Bureau. We had folks from AT&T, Guillermo Labari, um, but we also had a lot of people from all over, but every single one of them is um, either running their own business or they're running their own organization or they're running a municipality or they're a county commissioner or those sorts of things. And, and uh, they're all amazing people. There's a couple things I love about it. Even the most, maybe the most extreme that we would think are the most extreme, like a Chuck Steggerwalt mm -hmm. comes in. And the first thing he says to everybody is, we are going to, we need to be bipartisan in all of this. And he mm -hmm. is very Republican, very right. But when he comes through those Action 22 door meetings, he is one of the champions of a bipartisanship. And I love that. And then the other thing is, we get kind of in, we take a deep dive and it's a lot of discussion um, for us. We don't, um, we do some Robert's rules of order on, on the stuff that we need to do Robert's rules of order on when we're taking, you know, a solid position, but we do a lot of discussion and we ask a lot of questions and that's what, you know, this board allowed us to do that and design it. And as we were leaving, um, as we were saying goodbye, um, Cleve is, uh, of course, Senator S uh, Simpson is new. Um, and uh, he just got sworn in as a senator. Um, and he, you know, he mentioned that that was one of the things that he really liked about Action 22 is that we get to have those discussions. And like you just said, the input is real on what, how we take those positions. Um, and, and, the other thing he said, because he used to run a water district, he was the ED for a water district. And I said, you know, the whole thing um, on these kinds of organizations, success or failure is entirely on the board of directors that we have. And I think that, and he says, it goes the same for water conservancy districts. And I said, yep. everywhere. So it's, it, that's part of, one of the things that's a little different from you as a board of directors yeah. as comparative to some of the other stuff. It, it's like a boat, you know, the, the captain may be in charge of the boat, but the crew gets them there. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to talk, I just want to go over a couple of things really quick. We talked about pandemic relief. We talked about education. We talked about healthcare, we talked about transportation, the modernization of the tax code, we talked about climate change, um, and we also talked about consumer protections. It was a heavy list, there was a whole lot to get through. Um, what we decided is some of these things, we're kind of waiting to hear um, the direction that the, um, the federal government's gonna go, mm -hmm. um, what's gonna happen in DC before we really know um, some of these things are gonna be um, introduced. Uh, the, also, the even some of the legislation that's coming up, we haven't seen yet. So yeah. um, it's hard to take a position on something if you haven't actually seen what they're going to do. 
Yeah, so really today's meeting was just to get a general feel for where we were at as an organization um, on that. One of the things I that came up that really surprised me, and there's always something, because I go in with a thought of how I think, or you know, having talked to members or talked, had lots of conversations, what I think, and then what sort of comes out in these meetings. Um, so we were talking on the education side about, um, and we definitely want to do this. There's def- everybody agrees, and the, the position is solid on this, is that we would support anything that would keep a school district funding whole in the light of enrollment declines or backfilling for the budget cuts that, that we took a huge hit on um, in 2020. And for those of you who aren't in Colorado that are listening, Colorado fiscal policy is really tough and really complicated and literally we are the only ones that run our fiscal policy like this in the country. Um, other other states have, um, you have to balance the budget. That's the rule. But we have the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. We just repealed Gallagher. There's a whole lot of components to it. And even most Coloradans don't understand it. Um, but uh, education took a hit and we need to backfill that. The one that I found really interesting is the whole issue about standardized testing. Mm -hmm. So this is what Action 22 did. And Jim Ehrlich brought this up. I was thinking, you know, being married to a teacher and having some conversations with the principal and and that sort of thing. I had an idea what I thought should happen with standardized testing. Um, And then I thought it's really unfair to try to do a standardized test right now because Sometimes standardized tests are linked to funding and that kind of thing. It's actually a little bit more complicated, but Jim brought up, Jim Ehrlich from the San Luis Valley brought up something I hadn't thought about. Yeah, he said that it would be good to see how the students perform now after being on um, remote learning over the past year versus in-person learning. And so he, he actually was opposed to waiving standardized testing anytime soon because he wants to see that. Like, did it affect, how did it affect? Um, yeah, and I, I agree with him on that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I know standardized testing is linked to funding and school performance, but it's also linked to, to college. Um, right. And you're hearing the discussion uh, around the country, like colleges are actually deferring a lot of the standardized testing requirements or lowering them for this. So this is more of a funding issue from our standpoint versus, um, you know, college acceptance. I, I think the colleges know that right now it's not normal life and they're making exceptions. Well, and to Jim's point, I think it's really, really important that we understand what the impact of, mm. um, of that is so that uh, we can also see where we're going to have to shore up on certain things mm. and, and that sort of thing. Um, so this is what we decided as an organization that um, while we think that standardized testing um, should go forward, we don't want it to be linked to funding or linked to school performance for the next two years. Um, and also uh, we hope that they will follow in Colorado, that they'll follow some of the same, um, the model where they, as far as uh, college that they would waive that on that. So um, it's while it was much more complicated than I had originally thought, I thought that was just a beautiful example of really what the conversation can lead to and really an understanding on something like that. So we appreciated that opposing, just like we heard from um, Senator Bennett, it's okay for somebody to disagree with you because you might just learn something. Um, The 
there's a whole lot on the pandemic relief. Basically, we've we've just are holding off on taking any position because we need to see what the stimulus, mm -hmm. the next stimulus package is going to do, and then how we're this as the state we're going to react to that. Um, the thing that we really opposed um, straight off, uh, the only real position on pandemic relief that we took was um, that minimum wage for tipped workers would give an undue burden, especially to our rural communities who just can't afford it. And we heard from Pam Bricker, who owns a, um, a brewery and a restaurant down with her husband down in uh, Del Norte, Colorado. Um, and she said this would basically do her in. Um, that they just, that it would finish them off where they're already really, really struggling. So, and I think that's the whole general thing on this is yeah. that as we can, as we try to renew or revive our economy, we cannot continue to um, put burdens on, that may have been okay before, burdens um, on our businesses that, that we thought were a good idea 18 months ago are not a good idea. Now. Yeah, additional burdens on small business um, does not lead to success after this. No, no. And if you don't have any, if you don't have the business, you're not going to get any, the state's not going to get any revenue. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a killing the golden goose kind of scenario. Um, one of the things that we anticipate and that we know is going to be, and it was a huge fight last year too, and maybe even the year before that, was a public option, and that was a public option on healthcare. Um, and we got an update from Mike Beasley today, and they said um, they wrote a letter because we still don't know the um, proponents of this bill. They still haven't you know, put forward what their idea is, and I think it's changed pretty dramatically. Um, yeah, we'll have to see. They we'll have to put see. It together yet. So it's changed. And, and then the question is, do we actually even need a public option with everything that was put into place during the pandemic? So um, we're going to wait and see on that one. Um, there's going to be a lot of, struck, uh, of discussions on drug pricing um, and drug affordability and expanding drug importation. Again, it sounds like it's a simple thing, but there's a lot of layers to that. So that's another thing we're putting on our watch list. Um, of course, uh, we're going to talk about transportation. We talk about this every year. For a thousand years right now, there are some things, um, there's some bipartisan discussion on um, trying to do some more funding, but Chuck Staggerwall actually brought up a really good point um, that we need to maybe talk about challenging um, the federal rules for states, um, especially with regard to earmarks. So on federal money, um, the feds say, here's how you need to spend that, the money on transportation in your state, and that may not necessarily be the most um, like some, for Colorado on a rose, it'll, it's a triage situation. So how the money should be spent, I think is the question should be left up to the states. Yeah. So technically the feds don't have earmarks anymore. Okay. Um, and what an earmark is, they can say, here's a project and here's some money for it. So you could have a Congressman or a Senator say, you know, Alamosa needs a new highway. I'm going to put this in a bill where Alamosa is going to get, you know, $10 million to build this section of highway. So that's gone. They, they got rid of earmarks years ago. There's been discussion on the federal level of bringing them back um, because they did serve a, a good purpose. But again, with anything that the government federally does is you give them a little, you give them an inch and they take a mile and right. it kind of becomes corrupt. I shouldn't say corrupt. It just turns into a whole turns different animal. Turns into something animal. else, yeah. But there, I think there is an argument and there's a good case to be had, especially right now, where you're seeing some of this money come down from the feds through like COVID packages that gets to the state 
and not everybody gets it like they they leave it up to the state to distribute it as needed or even differently than what they give it to the state for now if you brought an earmark back federally then the state couldn't do that so pueblo or alamosa or baca would get the money that was written federally versus you know colorado here's a bunch of money it's supposed to go to this make sure it tries to go to this there you go and then you see it not go to that or not everybody gets it that needs it so like, and that's never happened right uh, it's um, never I'm being facetious all right um <laughs> this is going to be a big discussion a very complicated discussion i don't even begin to think that i could wrap my brain around this anytime soon but this is going to be coming down they've been working on this for a while the modernization of the tax code yep um, and this is really, a lot of this is around energy and a lot of this is around um, tax, eliminating current tax breaks um, and that kind of thing. Um, we had a list of what, a long list of what we, what we did on this. Um, I think it again goes to, um, if you're going to beat up on businesses, this is not the year to do it. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, we're not going to dismiss anything out of hand. Um, until we see what it is, but our general feeling is quit picking on the businesses. We need them to get back our economy back. So yep. um, regardless of what the business is. Yep. And um, I think with that, we're out of time. That was a good quick update on what we talked about today. And just yep. again, to remind everybody, go to YouTube, Making Action Happen. Please subscribe. I sound like a teenage streamer saying <laughs> subscribe, like, and comment on our YouTube video, but we do need subscribers it just helps us get get it out there and reach more people. So please do that. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns about the show, it's show at action22.org. Just right. send an email and we'll get it. Um, and we are getting lots of, of questions about how to join Action 22. And you can do that uh, and, and do it to make it really simple for you. You can go to uh, show at action22.org as well. And Brian will um, get back to you straight away on how to join Action 22. Thanks for joining us again. We will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.